Hello, and welcome to Over My Head, a look back at Pop's past, presented to you by Los Lovely Boys. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast to get these episodes as they drop. The music for our podcast today, as always, is provided by the artist Friend of Yours. Make sure to go follow them in the links that we put in our show notes. This is a podcast where we dissect all things pop from the recent past. Today, we are hoping to answer the all-important question, why did the song Viva La Vida by Coldplay pop? This is episode seven of our show, lucky number seven, and as usual, I have my co-hosts Chris and Stefan with me. Chris, I know that you're a really, really big Coldplay fan, so you must be really excited for this episode. I am. I am. Enough to outweigh the fact that I just spilled water all over my keyboard. Yes. So, yeah, we were on when that happened, um, so hopefully your keyboard is fine, but I'm glad that we get to talk about Coldplay. And guys, all three of us are now dog owners, too. That's pretty exciting. That's true. That is true. Last week we we were not all dog owners. Um, yeah. How was the How was the first week of dog ownership, boys? It's good. It's. Uh, I feel like my house is a zoo because I already have a cat. So I have the girlfriend, me, who is an animal, uh, the cat, who is an animal, and the dog, who is an animal. So that's three animals, one human, and we're all getting along, coexisting. It's good. We are no longer most lovely boys, but we are most lovely dogs. Yes, and yeah, Animal House for real over there. Then you're very place. much so. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah, we got we adopted a 14, 15 pound dog um, named him Rizzo, and he is pretty crazy uh, most of the time. A lot of energy, so um, been good. A lot of walks going on, and a lot of adjustment going on too. So, like they said, Los lovely dogs or Los lovely pups, whatever you want to call us. Uh, Los lovely arrows. If we're all Spanish. Yeah, we we have a lot of different different ways that we can do. So um, I know we like to talk about the music we're listening to, too. Chris, you said that Charlie XCX just dropped an album. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So Charlie XCX, I just listened to her album just before this. Uh, pretty good. I I had a much, um, you know, not to, not to like, not to discount Charlie at all, but I love Caitlin Aurelia Smith and she just dropped a great album. Um, the album's based on, so basically she, uh, she got really into, um, kind of like yoga and basic contortionism, um, and start and basically wrote the song where, uh, the album where each song is based on different like body position. And so like on the album cover, she's like contorted so that her feet are going in front of her face, like in kind of a backwards C and, yeah, it's a it's a great ambient uh, kind of experimental electronic album, um, and yeah, I mean, just I, I was reading an interview with that. I was like, that's ridiculously cool. Like, I love any kind of music where you just tie it to something like that that you just wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, it's interesting to see how a lot of artists get their inspiration, and it's, it's from something like that that you can make yoga into music is pretty interesting so if you guys are interested in that make sure to check that out um i haven't gotten a chance to listen yet but i know future dropped an album uh last night too not a mixtape an actual album um pretty long so we'll have to see how that is uh quality over quantity or quantity over quality for that matter as well too uh Stephen, what have you been listening to uh there's an electronic artist i like named hot sugar who's been uh cranking out some singles over the last few weeks pretty interesting sound recommend checking him out uh, other than that, I've been kind of on a retro kick. I made a 2000s pop punk woe playlist um, where it's a lot of emo, a lot of sad boys making music, um, and I think it's fitting in this time. So I've been 
revisiting fallout boy all american rejects that era of 2000s pop punk yeah i've been on a throwback kick too um i we talked about air force ones a couple weeks ago and i've been listening to that a lot um forgot how amazing that song is um actually this might be after we record already but nelly and Ludacris are doing a uh hit for hit battle too on instagram so that'll be an interesting one to watch um they're gonna go head to head like manny fresh did um and scott storch um and they're gonna do hit for hit so 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 that'll be pretty cool wins like is is there a vote is there a poll how is the the winner or the victor it's it's based on hype it's based on hype yeah so they just will like gauge audience interest though but they will basically just go head to head and play what they they want and what their hits were i saw someone say the other day that they think that Ludacris should not be able to use features because he has really really good features like you think glamorous baby um there are a couple other ones too yeah. so i was like that's interesting um but yeah that i think people forget how big nelly was uh back in the day someone will probably you know cover at least one of his songs but he was huge at the time and literally you know made fashion trends and, and everything too so that would be pretty interesting um as well I don't know who'd win that. Yeah, I don't know. It'd be pretty close. Um, they yeah. were saying that they thought Nelly would. They said when Nelly breaks out tip drill, maybe it's all over um, there. I know that was a controversial song uh, video back in the day, too. But, yeah, that would be a good one. So I'll probably tune into that to see uh, who, who wins head-to-head. And don't sleep on Just a Dream. Don't sleep on that yes. song. The, the pop crossovers. Uh, the <laughs> resurgence. Too, so... Yes, the resurgence indeed. So make sure that you follow our playlist, um, the Los Lovely Boys currently listening to, to get some of those new songs and old songs mixed together. But guys, we do have a great song to break down today. Um, So for all of you out there, you know for legal reasons by now that we cannot play this song, but we want you to go listen to it anywhere you can. Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, and we want you to support the artist and to at least get a feel for remembering the song. Maybe you already have. That's cool as well. Um, And on the other side, we will break it down into our memories surrounding the song, history, production, lyrics, got some segments coming for you too. So stick around and listen to some beats that remind you of Viva La Vida, and we will be there on the other side. Now that we are back, let's get into some first reactions, memories, everything surrounding the song. This song was huge, still is huge, I think, even to this time um, as well. But I'm going to throw it to Chris, um, the man who has a Coldplay tattoo, uh, actually, too. So give me your first thoughts, memories, everything surrounding this song. Yeah, yeah. Fun fact about the tattoo. Um, So that one... uh... This album was actually right around the time. Um, so I I was first introduced to Coldplay as a kid. Um, Yellow came out when we were all six. And right around that time, um, I had a cousin. Uh, shout out Zach. He uh, he burned me a CD um, with... Uh, it, was, it was a bunch of like U2 and uh, Interpol and all that, like just kind of early 2000s rock people and uh and 
pretty much the entirety of Parachutes was on there. Um, one of those one of those classic like CD era mixtapes where about half of it was just one whole CD. Anyway, the um, <laughs> so I so I was aware of Coldplay. Um, I do remember this was around the time um, iTunes was uh, iTunes was still definitely driving. Um, it was still the hit maker. Um, and I remember seeing uh, Viva La Vida or Death and All His Friends coming up for pre-order. And Viva La Vida, the song, was the pre-order bonus because that was the thing at the time. You you pre-order the album, you get the one song. And uh, and I remember thinking, okay, you know, like these guys, I remember, I, th- I think I know what to expect. You know, nice, uh, nice acoustic guitar type jams that break out into electronic rock, maybe like... Uh, or le- more really electric rocket to the point. But anyway, um, the song, uh, so the song, it, it was not that, um, Viva La Vida is one of those songs that you, I, I don't think I've quite heard much like it before or since. Um, and especially for a song that hit the heights that it did, um, it's it's pretty it's a pretty singular moment in pop history. Uh, what do y'all remember of it? I think the first time we have heard this song, I think most people can remember it or at least have a you know realization of where they were around the time. I think it's a perfect pop song. Like I think that from top to bottom, from everything, it is very diverse in lyrics and in production and everything in the culmination of what Coldplay was and they had you know hit the mark in every way that they needed to it's something that's still played today it's something where you first hear you know the the production that you're like okay yep we're gonna we're gonna stop and listen and sing this song um too so I think that when you think of Coldplay this is the song that you think of maybe first Yellow is one of those two Chris that's the one that I remember first was yellow and one that I go back to a lot, but I think Viva La Vida really is what is synonymous with Coldplay um, for people that are our age or maybe a little bit older too. What about you, Stefan? Yeah, I definitely remember, um, as Chris described, that pre-order period, and I wanted the song, but I didn't want to buy the album, so I remember waiting for that um, and hearing the hype about it. And my biggest memory of this song is at the time I was learning how to mow lawns and it's definitely like a lawn mowing song. Very epic. You're going side to side. You're going with the violins. Good tempo for it. So if you have to cut a lawn this weekend, plug in Viva La Vida. It's perfect for that. You heard it here first. It really is a lawn mowing it's song. It's absolutely wonderful. And it, about the song, it's just like maximalist as fuck. Like there's a lot, there's a lot of extra stuff about this song. It's just extra you have church gongs, you have an orchestra, you have lyrics about a king. It's just like not like any other song that's gone number one, let alone another Coldplay song. Yes, and we are going to break down everything that goes into this. This is a thick, deep song to go into, uh, so to speak. Uh, when we were putting this together, I was like, holy shit, there is a lot going on here. Um, and for good measure, um, as well too. So the time was 2008 when this song came out. Um, Chris, I know we talked about DJ Earworm a couple times too. This was the main one in, uh, DJ Earworm's mix. This was his, like, uh, one that he basically made the song around. Yeah. It, um, it was also again like very it's a unique song but um but it's still very much a 
a catchy song. Um, and so when, when he ended up using it, uh, it kind of makes sense as a backbeat almost. Um, yeah. And I'll, and I'll get into, uh, some of the composition elements of the song, but in terms of just immediacy, the strings, obviously, like that's, that's the iconic sound. Yeah. Completely agree. All right, well, let's dive into it then. Like I said, a lot to dive into with this song, so stick around for it all. We're going to break it down as best we can and as thorough as we can, too. But, Stefan, um, let's get into it. <laughs> a lot to do. But wh- who is Coldplay? Where'd they start? I know you're giving us a little spark note version of it, but take it away. Yeah, when you have a band that's been around for over 20 years, uh, and with quite a few albums, there's a lot to cover. And Viva La Vida is smack in the middle of that career. So we'll just do a Spark Notes version of the first half. So the band Coldplay, or we'll just call it the band at this point. It's not quite Coldplay. Forms in 1996 with college buddies. You have Chris Martin, who is the vocalist we all know. Will Champion, who is the drummer. Guy Berryman, the bassist. And Johnny Buckland, very British name, the guitarist. And for the first few years of um, their creation, they went by pectorals, that's spelled with a Z at the end. And then later they went by starfish. What do you guys think of that name? I love starfish. <laughs> I, I forgot about pectorals. I kind of like pectorals with the Z. I think that's like typical, like, yeah, we're in college. This is cool. We're going to put a Z on the end and we're unique. Yeah, I think all three are solid choices. Um, And Starfish at the time, SpongeBob was just coming up. So I think now when I think of Starfish, I think of Patrick. But maybe I would have thought of what would become Coldplay. Yeah. Well, I mean, Coldplay also, like, we've gotten so used to it. But the name Coldplay is really weird. (laughs) If you think about it. All one word. Yeah, Coldplay, all one word. (laughs) Yeah. So they they had a they had a taste for something memorable. Yeah. yeah so na- uh, band name game, I give that an A plus. But we have Coldplay, and this story is about Coldplay. So we all began to learn about the band in 2000 from a little song named Yellow off their debut album Parachutes, and that produced a fair no- amount of other hits. Was very successful globally in the UK and then here in the states as well as throughout Europe. And uh, the sound of the album Parachutes kind of fit into the era of rock that was around the turn of the century. It was very melancholy, post-grunge, soft rock sounds. So it fit right into that uh, ecoscape and was very safe. And Coldplay would become like a very safe play for sports stadiums, uh, radio. A lot of other places would choose to utilize Coldplay because of that aspect. Another mom-approved group, I would say, too. Absolutely. And uh, the hits just kept coming. In 2002, we get the second album, A Rush of Blood to the Head. And uh, this followed up their debut album quite nicely. There's a lot of pressure. And we get some of Coldplay's most famous songs to this day, Clocks and The Scientist. And uh, the critical acclaim was there. They received three Grammys for the album. Clocks won the record of the year. And I think this album kind of moved them a bit more, um, maybe not as soft as Parachutes, and became kind of um, an heir apparent to you two. They started playing in arenas more often, bigger tours, etc. So now we come up on the band's third album, X and Y, which is eventually released in 2005. And in the midst of uh, producing the album, there's quite a lot of drama with the band. 
Um, they were working with a producer named Ken Nelson, who had worked on the prior two albums, but the third time was not the charm here. They wrote 60 songs across all of 2004. 52 ended up being discarded. Holy shit. I'm not good at percentages, but that's a lot. That's a lot of songs. Yeah, and the band was not happy with the process that um, Ken Nelson was overseeing. They called the songs flat and passionless, and I think they put a lot of pressure on themselves to kind of um, progress past the two albums, but the end result was more of the same. Um, They had a new producer, Danton Supple, who resumes production, and there was a lot of pressure to just get the album out there. Um, The release was delayed, and that actually caused the stock of EMI Records to drop. So on one hand, that shows how much sway that Coldplay the band had on their record label, that they affected the stock price. Um, But you could tell there was a lot of pressure just to get something out there, despite it not being their best vision. Now, Chris, I saw that you just like shrugged a little bit about X and Y. Uh, Same thoughts (laughs) on there? So X and Y... um is always kind of a weird one in terms of like, I, like I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna try to sugarcoat my Coldplay fandom. Like among other Coldplay fans, it's kind of, it's kind of polarizing just because, yeah, I mean, even if you look at it in context of the discography and mind you, um, Coldplay's first two albums were very big in America, but huge in the mm-hmm. UK which explains EMI's stock price being tied. You ju- so songs like In My Place um, that were, you know, pretty pretty modest radio hits over here relatively went number one and were there for weeks. Um, when X and Y was uh, first coming out, it was wildly anticipated, and the first single was Speed of Sound. Um, now, not a bad song, but... I would challenge anyone listening to this to think about speed of sound and try not to think about clocks. Very difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's very much you can tell that they were kind of in a pressure point. Um, I mean, it that said, X and one of X and Y's biggest strong suits was that they kind of channeled that frustration to sort of expand the edges of their sound. Um, it did have one of their most experimental songs yet with, uh, with talk, which sampled Kraftwerk. Um, that's, uh, I mean, it kind of set the stage for Viva La Vida. And I don't think we get Viva La Vida without, like you said, the producer drama and just the general, I, cause I feel like for, for all that I can talk about being, not that big of a fan of X and Y. I feel like the band was the most dissatisfied as anyone. That's absolutely true. I mean, commercially, it was a success. As you mentioned, you get Speed of Sound, you get Fix You, which was kind of like a quasi-meme mm-hmm. at the time, featuring a lot of movies, kind of a cry-boy anthem. Uh, but you're right. The band wasn't as proud as the album as the commercial success would dictate. Um, some critics argued that the band was becoming insufferable, producing the same music uh, for the first three albums. And Chris Martin said he actually agreed with some of the reviews and was seeking criticism that would validate his own thoughts about the album, and he found that um, through the New York Times and Pitchfork. So the band is dissatisfied, and they want to move into a new direction. And as Chris hinted, this is kind of what led up to Viva La Vida or Death and All His Friends. So the band records their fourth album, 
um, from 2006 to 2008, taking a large sum of time to make sure it's right and in their vision. And they brought in a lot of producers after the drama that happened with X and Y. They changed things up by lining up John Hopkins, who has had a long career since helping on this one, uh, Marcus Stravs, Rick Simpson, uh, but the biggest name at the time was Brian Eno. And he was known for working with other rock heavyweights throughout a lot of decades, as well as producing ambient music on his own. Uh, some of the big names he's worked with include David Bowie and U2, so probably Coldplay's uh, biggest influence. And with the additional producers, the results on Viva La Vida or Death, We're All His Friends, is you get a much more global and diverse album than the music they had um, created previously. Viva La Vida, the song we're covering, it uses Roman Catholic orchestral sounds. Very odd for a rock band to do that. You have the song Lost, which we actually mentioned in uh, the Crimea River episode, kind of takes the drum beat from that song, and that drum beat is inherently tribal. You have Iranian instruments in Life and Technicolor, and the band used a Spanish saying, live the life for the name of the album, Viva La Vida. So very global, very diverse act all around. And we'll get on with this later in the episode, but lyrically, the album's dealing with more um, complex issues rather than love. We get politics, history, philosophy. The song Violet, Violet Hill, which was actually the first single, is actually about Fox News, according to Chris Martin, something that I did not catch when I was 14 years old, uh, but it's pretty apparent when you read into it. And overall, with this album, you get the theme of revolution. It's painfully apparent. If you take a look at the album cover, it's actually a painting from 1830 by an artist named Eugene Delacroix. If you're French, I'm probably butchering that name. Uh, but the painting is called Liberty Leading the People. So they're making it blatantly obvious this album is about revolution, and it's really about self-revolution after all the drama that happened with the previous album X and Y. They wanted to take an experimental approach, and they didn't want to be seen as a safe band that had produced the same music over and over again for their first three albums. Now, I think that they were fortunate to be in the position they were, and maybe that's lucky that we got, you know, this album and this song too, because if a band, you know, was on the downswing a little bit more, maybe they were, wouldn't take the risk like this with um, different things such as, you know, art, so to speak, too. So I didn't know what your guys' thoughts were with that. Yeah, it's absolutely. a fine line because the same safe formula that, that they were being criticized for worked commercially. People liked that music that stayed in the lanes. Like we said, it has that mom appeal. So that's going to sell records. But the critics are kind of pushing them to experiment more. I mean, it's one. It's kind of a tale as old as time in terms of how does a popular band reinvent yep. themselves. Um, I mean, the whole idea of a sophomore slump is kind of based off of the same deal once you... It's like, okay, but what else? Like, you can do this over and over. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Beatles, really. Um, I remember at the time people being like, guess what, guys? It's time for their revolver. Um, and I was like, uh, you know, so th I at the time, I, I have that memory tied really vividly because I was also uh, getting into the Beatles pretty significantly in my middle school years. But, um, but in a lot of ways, I mean similar uh kind of international particularly indian and just eastern in general uh influence as well as kind of just a reverence for uh for fine art and you know non non-traditional western uh 
pop music is in, but still accessible. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of the pressures of that period of your career. Um, really make or break a great band. And this was Coldplay pulling out the stops and saying, yep, we're, uh, we're making, we're making a, we're not just making another Coldplay album. We are creating what Coldplay is at a legacy level. Yeah. And that clearly worked, right, Ryan? Because they were very much rewarded for the album in many ways. It absolutely did. And I think it worked almost entirely because of Viva La Vida, the song that this podcast episode is titled after. So the album becomes the best-selling album of 2008. It's nominated for Album of the Year. It took home the best rock album of the 2009 Grammys. But is any of that without the success of Viva La Vida? I don't think so, because this song was huge. And it was groundbreaking for many, many, many reasons. Um, Like we said, it's orchestral, it's odd, but it works, it's catchy. It's nothing like Fix You, which is a popular song, but, you know, it's very standard piano-driven ballads that the public had grown to expect. Um, Part of the reason it also worked, as Chris hinted of one of his first memories of the song, is it took a very digital-first approach to the release strategy. Um, When you team up with Apple, that means you're a pretty huge name. And Apple identified this song as something that would lead into its advertising campaign for 2008. Uh, They were really trying to tie in a whole thing called iPod plus iTunes at the time and chose this song to headmark that year-long campaign. And as Chris mentioned, they wanted to sell this album, so they gave um, users that pre-ordered Viva La Vida or Death and All His Friends this single uh, May 7th, a few weeks before the song was actually released on May 25th. And when it was released on May 25th, it was download only, something that people were scared would actually impact the chart success at the time. They said, what are you doing? This is crazy. But we were in a new digital world and it worked. That's crazy because now it's like, buy it digitally and stream it because that's literally most of the formula right now. So that they were scared back then that it would affect it by buying it digitally. Yeah, because you needed like some sort of physical single. And now I can't even conceptualize what a physical single actually looks like. <laughs> you know what's funny too about that is even further so than Viva La Vida's portion of the release. I remember at the time Violet Hill being released a little bit before that. You mentioned it was technically yes. the first single, but it was released for free. <laughs> um, and... That, I remember at the time, being kind of a, what the hell are you doing sort of moment. I mean, the song was definitely one of the lower charting uh, from the album, um, especially considering, again, like, they ju- they're they're off, they're just getting off of a streak of, I think, three number ones from X and Y, maybe two. Um, so to kind of come back with, all right, this one's for free, wait for the next one, and that's what's going to the radio. Um, I mean, that's that's very forward thinking and definitely a gamble, but it played it, it certainly played off. It, it played off immediately. As soon as they released the album officially, um, it debuted at number 15 on the Hot 100 the week it was released. Uh, pretty impressive. And then it would enter the top 10 only two weeks later, uh, June 7th, and it would not leave the top 10 for 16 straight weeks. It peaks at number one on June 28th, 2008, and this would mark Coldplay's only number one hit and one of four in the top ten. 
Yeah, so uh, Viva La Vida is the peak of Coldplay. It remains on the Hot 100 chart for 51 weeks. According to my wow. Minnesota math, that is one short week of the year. And it was also Wild. the best-selling song on <laughs> iTunes true. in 2008. Uh, so that strategy, digital only, worked here. Yeah. Man. Which is so ironic because it's, it's, it's a song that's mostly built around strings. Yeah, and we've heard nothing like no. it since, and it would have taken a long time to dig back to hear something like it that, you know, um, happened yeah. in the 60s, maybe. I mean, and you, you think, if you're thinking of, hey, what was one of the first major digital singles of the digital download era, you don't think strings. No, not by any means. <laughs> maybe since designed to sound like strings, but not literal strings. So we talked about the chart success, 51 weeks. When a chart remains, when a song remains on a chart for that long, it tends to have some lasting power with longer length charts. And some of these facts are pretty eye-popping to me. Um, as we mentioned, number 13 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 for the year end, that led to its inclusion on the DJ Earworm song, Viva La Pop. The song was also named after the song we're covering here. His best one. I agree. The best by far. And then you have the decade end chart, which Billboard did for the Hot 100. It was number 49. So smack dab in the middle there. And one of the biggest uh, chart placements for this song was in 2018, Billboard did a 60th anniversary celebration for the Hot 100 chart. And they did quite a lot of songs. Viva La Vida placed number 352 all time. And for some context, it was sandwiched in between Opposites Attract by Paula Abdul and the song Fancy by Iggy Azalea featuring Charlie XCX. You have three very different songs there. Yes. <laughs> and this song, when we think about all time, 352 is high if you look back at the 60-year um, chart history for Billboard. So when we look at global success this song had, you could say it was even bigger than what we had in the States. If you look at other countries, particularly in Europe, all time, their charts, it's number 75 on Belgium's chart. It's number nine all time on the Dutch top 40 chart. Uh -huh. It's number 44 on Sweden's chart. And as we discussed in previous episodes, they know pop music. So that's huge. And it's number 39 on Switzerland's chart. So 352, pretty big, but to place within the top 100 of four other countries, global smash. So when you have a song that's as popular and successful as Viva La Vida, you start to get some people crawling out of the legal woodwork. Coldplay had to navigate through a number of plagiarism claims in the wake of this song's success. Um, and we'll go through them here, kind of validate what similarities they are through the production and if they had any claim to kind of um, proceed with the lawsuit so the first one is the songs i didn't write by an american alternative band called creaky boards and that's a very fitting title for a plagiarism claim the songs i didn't write you're trying to go after somebody for stealing your songs anyway they claim the melody was taken from this song after chris martin attended a live show of theirs in 2007 however the band said no, 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 no. We have our receipts here, and this timeline doesn't add up. Chris Martin was working in London at AIR Studios and released a demo version of Viva La Vida before you claim he attended your live show. So Creaky Boards, the band, says, 
you know what? We'll retract this, but we do want to say one thing. We think both of our songs were influenced by The Legend of Zelda. <laughs> All right, that's a Hail Mary. Yeah, they, they say not only was yours, but ours too, actually. So that's kind of take that. indicting yourself. If you're going to make a false claim and then say, yeah. you know what? I think both of our songs were just influenced by this video game. That's grasping at straws and possibly airing your dirty laundry. I didn't think that one through. Uh, the second one, much bigger song by a much bigger artist, we have If I Could Fly by Joe Satriani. The song was released in 2004, so the timeline's uh, much better for his case. And he actually filed a suit in December of 2008, claiming that substantial original portions were taken out. The case was dismissed in 2009, and both parties might have agreed on a, an out-of-court settlement we don't know. Uh, but for me personally, I think this claim might have the most weight because if you listen to the choruses, the guitar in Joe Satriani's case, it's uh, very striking in its resemblance. I don't know, Chris, you have another viewpoint as the production expert, but I think there's a case to be made here. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be honest. Like, I my, my Coldplay bias does not negate the fact that they are literally the same chords with the same, I think it's like, a bar and a half of melody. <laughs> like it's pretty, it's pretty substantial. Um, I believe if I remember right, and this is just off the top of my head, so I don't quite remember, but it's, it's transposed a little bit. It's not a hundred percent in the same key on the recorded version of um, Joe Satriani's song. But the fact that it's, it's Joe Satriani who's known for his live improvisations. Um, he, I could very well have, um, I could very well see him having played it almost verbatim at some point. And I'll talk about this a little bit more later on, but um, <laughs> kind of as you referenced with the Legend of Zelda guys, um, Chris Martin in, in particular has a really eclectic music taste. And especially at that time was def was going to shows pretty much constantly. Um, so I, again, we've talked about this before in general, especially when it comes down to, um, to things like chord progressions and even like basic melodies, I get really uncomfortable with saying, you know, like owner with giving ownership, I guess, to that. But, you know, I, I suspect that's why they ended up settling out of court with that one, just because it was high profile enough that it ended up becoming a part of the song's legacy mm -hmm. for a bit. They probably just wanted to put a kibosh on that. Yeah, for those who don't know, Joe Satriani is a hell of a guitarist. Maybe even one of the best of all time, too. I know my dad really likes Joe Satriani, so shout out to Randy uh, for that one. But uh, he, he is a very, very, very talented guitarist. So um, even if he yeah. was, you know, mimicked or copied, um, kind of cool to, you know, know that some of your stuff was that good and you are that good that people think of that. Yeah, and we're by no means making any claims here ourselves. We're just listing out what happened. We will include the songs that are featured here in the show notes. So if you want to listen to yourself and see any comparisons, draw your own conclusions, you are free to do that. But um, for me, maybe this one's the most similar. There is one more claim, um, a very outspoken claim. We have the song Foreigner Sweet by Yusef Islam, formerly known as, and maybe more popularly known as, Cat Stevens. Uh, this song is an 18-minute epic that was released in 1973 and Yusef or Kat said that his son brought it to his attention that Viva La Vida sounded like Foreigner Suite 
in 2009, so a year after this song was really popular. And uh, Yusuf Islam said he didn't file a claim, quoted, he would wait to see how well Satriani does. Never did eventually um, submit a claim, but he later said, they did copy my song, but I don't think they did it on purpose. I don't want them to think I'm angry with them. I'd love to sit down and have a cup of tea with them and let them know it's okay. How European. Like yeah, how European of, of him. <laughs> it just wants to hash it out, but kind of in a... Yeah. Um, just wildly, wildly British. Wildly condescending way. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to let Coldplay go undefended here. Um, the drummer, Will Champion, did respond to all these claims, and I'll just say what he said verbatim. He's quoted as saying... It's tough when people accuse you of stealing something, when you know that you didn't. So we accept that's part of the territory. He goes on to say something that Chris has mentioned just previously and in many times in other previous episodes when we talk about copyright and music. Here's what he said. There are elements of our music that I've heard in other people's music. It's interesting, but a very difficult thing to define. There are only eight notes in an octave, and no one owns them. And there are probably about 12,000 songs that feature the exact same chord progression. I think it lies on an intent to steal, which we certainly have never done and never would. So it's unfortunate, but it's the way people are. That's that. We're confident we haven't done anything wrong. Chris Martin isn't a dummy. He knows. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Will's right. Like, at some point, it's at some point, it's sound. Like, it just feels wrong to say, hey, these intervals of the Western musical scale, is uh, we own those in that sequence. Like, I don't know. It just, it, And that's, again, like, obviously, obviously in the court of law, I am objectively incorrect about that. But it, it just it's a it's going to be a continual thing that we bring up. Um, I mean, we're covering the beginning of the modern era of music. Um not only the digital era, but kind of the era where just things cracked open in terms of accessibility. So more and more cases like this began to happen more and more high profile, and they definitely will continue to, um, they will continue to happen, uh, going forward. Exactly. This is a theme that we will not, um, sweep under the rug, but yeah, we've said, I think a common thing is that, uh, inspiration, and just taking something for yourself are two very different things, and it kind of lies in that gray area of intent, as uh, Will mentioned. So we have Viva La Vida. We have Coldplay. Coldplay goes on after Viva La Vida for many, many years. This is smack in the middle of that point. We'll just touch on what they've done since. So Viva La Vida is a great midpoint in terms of both chronological and musical style. It was their fourth album. They have... Uh, eight albums. The first three they kind of refer as a trilogy, light piano-driven rock. The albums after that continued the themes of experimentation explored in Viva La Vida. The band releases four more albums between 2011 and 2019. The fifth album's probably been the most commercially successful. That is Milo Xylido, a personal favorite of mine. I think it's kind of underrated. And it is a rock opera that has much more electronic presence that was previously explored in Coldplay's previous work. And it had pretty decent success. You have Every Teardrop is a Waterfall, Paradise, Princess of China with the huge Rihanna feature. And I wanted, uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on this song, uh, this album? I think we both listened to it at the same time we were in high school. 
Yeah, I'm no, I have many good memories with you of uh, every teardrop is a waterfall at all. Um, I mean, I so I definitely agree about it being a bit underrated in their discography. It's not accessible. Um, there are parts of it that are accessible, but as a whole, it is a very strange yes, album. Indeed. Um, and I, uh, I will say, um, one thing that, um, one thing that I feel is, is it's often kind of overlooked for it's how forward thinking it was in terms of sound and in terms of kind of setting a blueprint for, uh, for the modern prog rock, I guess prog rock maybe is a bit of a stretch, but just rock it's a rock um, opera right rock it tells a huge story mutating into something yeah yeah and production wise so um gonna talk a lot about john hopkins pretty soon because i love him but uh he actually was involved on that album as well um he uh he carried over his uh, his kind of reinvention of coldplay's sound from viva la vida they took it and ran with it um and that sort of like mid mid-career Coldplay before Ghost Stories and they went straight skeletal, like down-tempo electronic. Um, that that kind of still sort of stadium, but almost surreal, colorful sound is definitely my favorite period of Coldplay. Yeah, it's absolutely enlightening compared to the recent work they've um, released within this decade. Um, it's a huge breaking off point. As you mentioned, Ghost Stories, their sixth album, was a return to slower, somber songs that dominated their first three albums. Really, Parachutes comes to mind when I think of Ghost Stories. But you still had a glossy synth pop. You had a sky full of stars. Um, so it was kind of, it, it tried to be more somber, but I think it would have worked better if it was just somber throughout. Mm-hmm. Going on, you have A Head Full of Dreams, the seventh album. Ton of collaboration from huge artists. Much more of a cheery tone after Ghost Stories. So we're hopping back between Gloomy and Cheery. And then their latest album, Everyday Life, their eighth, actually had some songs from the Viva La Vida recording sessions. And I think that kind of shows how the band looks back at this era that we're currently talking about. Um, Everyday Life has gotten some pretty good critical reception. It's very diverse in genres and global sounds, which... Viva La Vida exceeds it. And um, it's not doing as well commercially, but I think it's the most similar to Viva La Vida. Yeah, I love that album. I would definitely recommend giving it a listen if you if you haven't, um, especially if you, like me, found yourself just increasingly frustrated with the Head Full of Dreams style. Great point. And we're over 20 years now of Coldplay, and to survive 20 years, you have to experiment and listen to a lot of inspiration in order to do so. So to close out this kind of segment, I want to remember what Viva La Vida is remembered for. And with all the success and ability to look back at multiple Coldplay albums, it's apparent that Viva La Vida cemented its place in the history for the band, definitely. It's their only number one hit. It cemented its place in the download era, kind of destroyed physical singles, and it cemented its place in the decade as one of the top songs that people remember when they think of the 2000s. But even though we're only 12 years out, which can seem both short and long depending how you look at it, the song sounds like it's from another era, maybe an era specific to itself. 
pop, rock, alternative, and EDM, all these genres have gone through phases that have come and gone since this song is released. And Coldplay themselves have incorporated some of those trends in their recent music, which are now dated. But when I look back at all the number one songs from the Hot 100 chart from when this song peaked in 2008, and I looked throughout to this day in 2020, and I came across something that I have mentioned quite a bit on this podcast, and I will admit it's a personal cliche for me, the death of rock music. I mention it quite a lot because it's kind of sad to me and it's kind of apparent. And when I looked back at the number one hits on the Hot 100 chart, this really just lit up a light bulb. Rock music has died. It died in terms of popularity within the last decade. It's dead as a popular genre. Viva no mas is rock. Now, I believe this song is the last rock song in some capacity as a number one on the Hot 100 Billboard chart, but it depends on your definition of rock itself. There are several definitions you could take here that I'll lay out. So the first claim you could make is you could say, I think this song, Viva La Vida, is the best and last Baroque art rock song that went number one. That's not a large pool because how many Baroque pop songs chart? Okay, we can make that claim. You could broaden the claim a bit and say that this is the last rock song by a traditional rock band that went number one. Fair, but a bit more broad. And here's a very spicy claim that I'm about to make. You could say that Viva La Vida is the last song of the entire genre of rock that topped the Hot 100 chart, period. I'm talking no other song since Viva La Vida has been what we call rock. So... Let's play Let's play a, a game. Let's play a game around this claim and have a discussion. I've identified a few of the number one songs from the last 12 years that maybe could rival that claim that this is the last rock song in some capacity. And we will see maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. And I do want to preface this is not a huge diverse group of songs by any means. Most of the artists are white because rock is inherently white, and the criteria are these songs had to hit number one on the Hot 100 chart. So I just picked the ones that might rival it the most. Yeah, I mean, I will say that's a good <laughs> that's a good caveat. Everything that's come after it that's even remotely similar is definitely from the white tradition of, of uh, what we consider commercialized rock. Um, I'd say that and even Coldplay, for that matter, for white dudes from Britain who are using a ton of uh, Eastern sounds and, you know, music that was inherently derived from uh, black cultures and um, and brown cultures as well. The it, That's not comeback, I guess. Um, we, prob- we probably saw the last of true original roots rock in at the top of the charts several decades before. That said, um, I know one song that comes to mind is uh, We Are Young by Fun in terms of the modern canon of uh, kind of mainstream rock that I I would, I would, I'm on the fence. I know we talked about this briefly earlier and I, and I immediately was like, wait a minute, We Are Young. And the more I think about it, the less that song really feels like rock. Yeah, I would agree. That's a song I had on this list. But when I think of We Are Young, there's a few things that um, strike it down for me. I think it falls into the indie pop era that was the early 2010s where you have a millennial whoop. Um, 
Janelle Monet is featured. She's featured. She's completely underutilized. If they wanted to, yeah, they should have totally expanded her beyond uh, just the bridge. Um, Nate Roos went on to do a lot of pop stuff. And if you look at Fun's discography, it's really more indie for me than pop or rock. Uh, But you could make a case. I don't know, Anthony, what do you think about that song? That song just reminds me of senior year of high school and maybe not in a good way. I'll put it that. <laughs> it's just one of those, yeah, that you like. You're like, you know, and just the la la da 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 da. I'm just like, man, that like makes me cringe that I used to like scream that in my car with my friends. Well, that was kind <laughs> of the the time of the era. Like we were in the Obama presidency. Everything was optimistic and sparkly. Yeah. We are young. We're gonna go out and have fun. At I the know. Bar. Now, it's now like it's like at. what John Mulaney said. It's a it's a bullshit song made for teenagers. Where it's like this is the night and every and there are no other nights other than this and it's just like bullshit yeah. um, so and i mean that's what the song yeah. was made for um and i know that one of those guys went on to do stuff with bleachers and then the other jack guy, antonoff uh yeah the, successfully. one of those guys other guy nate russo whatever his name is uh made a song with pink and then now n- not not really heard of anymore so I mean, maybe the blind optimism is one of the biggest things tying it to, you know, mainstream rocks canon, um, if anything. Just that was kind of near the end of uh, of a more blindly optimistic and happy era of pop hits. I mean, if you think if you listen to pretty much everything after late 2016 onward, that hit number one versus that era. Yeah, it's almost like something happened. Yeah, I don't 2016. Know, maybe. Hmm. maybe I don't know. Yeah, but so Stefan, what other songs were uh, on your list that you were thinking might come close? Yeah, so sticking with 2012, um, another song that went number one is "Somebody That I Used to Know" um, by Goat Yeah featuring Kimbra. Maybe rock, but wonder. definitely more indie for me. Art pop. Yeah. Art pop. Yeah. I'd agree. And then their contemporaries, if you think about the 2000s, you have Maroon 5, and they went number one three times since Viva La Vida came out, and I'll list the songs. We have Moves Like Jagger. It mentions a rock star, but it has Christina Aguilera, a lot of synths. <laughs> it's pop. We have One More Night in 2012, reggae, bullshit pop. And we have Girls Like You song. in 2018 with Cardi B. Are any of those rock? No. No. I... I like to call I like to call Maroon Five now Adam and the Levines because it's not the same group yeah, by any means that it was uh, with uh, songs about Jane. Yeah. But yeah, he has the rock star persona, I guess, when you like look at him. But it's just all pop and nothing more. They had one uh, number one hit in "Makes Me Wonder" that could be argued as a rock song, but that was back in '06 and. Um, moved like Jagger was really the start of late era Maroon yes, 5. Yes, Adam and the Levines, exactly. A, yeah, to put it in a kind way, late era. <laughs> um, another song that I thought might qualify, really hazy definition here, Rude by Magic. Again, you have a band, there's a guitarist, there's live instrumentation, but this is more reggae pop, kind of in the veins yeah. of One More Night. That song went number one? It did. Yeah, oh, that I, song sucks. which I also don't be rude. I, I also was kind of surprised by that in the <laughs> goddamn. Uh, in hindsight, like that 
I knew it, like that song was huge at the time, but it definitely just felt like one of those ones that record labels are like, shoot, we can't tell what's popular anymore. Just put a ton of spend behind this one and get it on the radio. Not great. And just like magic, that band went poof after that song. Oh, good one. Thank you. I'm cranking them out here. Moving on, um, we have an interesting case here. We have Rockstar by Post Malone. This is rock in the name only. No. <laughs> um, he's rapping, but it would be a sign of things to come for Posty. I think one of the songs that um, maybe resembles rock the most since Viva La Vida uh, charted at number one might be Circles. Yeah. I, I think that's actually one of the closer. Um, just... It's basically it's basically a rip of Tame Impala style, um, who are probably the closest thing to a big rock band these days. Um, and uh, I I could consider that song uh, rock for the most part, but Post Malone in general is just very much kind of modern chameleonic pop. Um, he just he just kind of flits between whatever whatever's going to work at a given time. I mean, power to him; it's clearly working, but. Um, yeah, I have a hard time taking him seriously as a, as a rock artist. Yeah. And Stefan, you bring up all that, like about death of rock. I think like the death of the rock star, the true rock star is one of those things too, because now it's pop stars and hip hop stars. I mean, like Post Malone is a huge star and you know, he's known for hip hop or pop. And like, you think of like someone like Drake or, you know, all these people. And I think that it is the death of everything revolving rock, rock stars, rock, everything in between. And it's pretty evident from that list that, that there is not much rock going on, if any at all. Yeah, there's two more in 2019. I think might, you might be able to make a case shallow, structurally rock. I think if you took somebody from the 1970s and said, yeah. here's a song, they might identify that as rock. But this is a soundtrack song, and you have Bradley Cooper as one of the artists who is not an artist, let alone a rock star. And then you have Sucker in 2019 as well, but this is the Jonas Brothers. They're a boy band. It's pop. So that's the list. That's it. What do you guys think? Which is which is pretty striking <laughs> in hindsight. 12 years and since the death of rock, I would say, in a, in a big scape. Um, something I thought of too with rock in general was and like that pretty much cemented it too was that when you two just put their album on everyone's phone and everyone's like, what the fuck? I don't Get want this. this. Like iTunes. everyone was like, what the hell is going on? Um, that was when you yeah. were like, okay, maybe it's really, really dead. Like, you know, the, the, the meme, the verbal meme, like stop, he's already dead. You know, like things like that, that, yeah. that might've been <laughs> the actual kicker, but like when you two is huge and when people don't want something on there at all, that's pretty much saying that, you know, maybe it goes all the way back to 2008 with the death of it. Yeah, interesting parallel there because Viva La Vida was part of the huge Apple advertising campaign. That U2 album was also a part of a huge Apple advertising campaign. Two very different results. Yeah. 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 Completely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was a great wrap-up of history. There's a lot to go through and the death of pop. Uh, or excuse me, the death of rock um, and everything in between. So Chris, a lot of different production here. We've talked about some plagiarism maybe and oh, things yeah. like that too, but let's get into the production surrounding this song and really, not to spoil it, but how 
freaking amazing it is. Yeah, I mean, and I'm going to go off. I'm not even going to sugarcoat that. So, um, so Viva La Vida is, this whole album is a special album to me. It's definitely one of my all-time favorites. And it's also one of the most influential to me in terms of a lover of music. Um, and so just because this whole album kind of became such a storied thing um, for me and many, many others, um, I kind of want to take it from two perspectives. Um, and the first of these is going to be from the collaborative perspective, because this is a, this is a collaboration um, for the ages in a lot of ways. Um, but pretty, pretty chiefly it's a, it's Coldplay reaching out and genuinely. So kind of rare in terms of the canon of rock history, much more, truly collaborative rather than, you know, some might say stealing in the past or uh, just straight up um, kind of appropriating. Um, this is, this is, uh, now obviously we, we talked about some plagiarism uh, accusations, but for the most part, this is, this sound wouldn't be possible had Coldplay not opened their doors, so to speak. And one of the people that they opened their doors to was, this is wild. I did not, it did not connect to me until just now, but, um, um, a man who was at the time my age now, 26 years old, um, by the name of John Hopkins, um, who, uh, kind of a, kind of a, up and coming, um, electronic musician at the time. Um, he'd had one album, uh, several years prior. Um, and, you know, hadn't hadn't necessarily hit the heights that one might have hoped and ended up kind of being taken under the wing of the world famous Brian Eno. Um, one, storied for working with the Talking Heads, among others, over the years. You too as well. Uh, we kind of touched on that. But Brian Eno um, kind of brought in John Hopkins um, after he'd been tapped for, uh, for collaboration with Coldplay. Um, for the follow-up to X and Y, we kind of talked about, um, you know, the, the era that Viva La Vida was born out of, um, a very frustrated era, um, creatively for the boys. Um, and at the time they, they kind of turned to, um, they kind of turned to as far reaching of influences as they could. He would often talk about um, Coldplay, particularly Chris Martin, having a very eclectic music taste. Um, one of my one of my favorite uh, interviews from him um, was when he introduced me to Hudson Mohawk um, because he worked with them briefly in the Milo Zilato era um, and was and talked about saying, you know, Chris Martin had me into the studio and said, "Have you heard this song, Fuse?" <laughs> in 2011 and that um i mean if you uh if you think about like what the sound of that decade was about to be that's pretty uh it's pretty prescient um but i mean they're they've often talked about their favorite band being echo and the bunny men um just big fans of experimental rock and rock that pushes the boundaries in any in any manner um but also major fans of electronic they're all british um they're all uh <laughs> they're all of kind of um a canon that includes very electronic friendly um uh artists we mentioned uh talk 
was kind of a first foray into the sound of Four on the Floor. Um, Viva La Vida dove headfirst into, you know, not just electronic in the club context, but electronic in the context of kind of art facing. Um, John Hopkins himself would end up contributing a good amount of the sound. He's credited as a co-producer on Viva La Vida um, and specifically has referenced uh, (laughs) basically the band saying, we don't really know what to do uh, in this transition between the first chorus and the second verse um, and adding just, he said, whatever came to his mind, uh, noodling around on a number of modular synths. Um, creating almost these whistling sounds, kind of a um, kind of creating some tension that propels the track forward into um, into some soaring synth um, synth string harmonies over the orchestral st- uh, strings. It was definitely a part of the album, you know, from top to finish. And he actually cited um, Coldplay kind of voice to all of us in the room at the time. The purpose of this was to transform Coldplay. Um, we, they were one of the biggest bands in the world and they were also one of those parodied. You always think of that. Um, God, what is it? 40 year old virgin or what movie from that time where they talk about, you know how I, you know how I know you're gay. Coldplay. You like Coldplay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That <laughs> was 40 year old virgin. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. How, uh, how much humor like that has, was accepted at the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, uh, so point being Coldplay was always kind of the butt of the joke at the time. And they really wanted to break out decisively. I think that perspective, just imagining a 26 year old kind of still trying to find his own artistic identity, entering a room with one of the biggest bands in the world. And not only, not only kind of finding himself, but becoming, being a big part of the crux of both careers. Um, it just shows how much Coldplay really came into Viva La Vida with the same spirit of, you know, just hunger that propels so many uh, bands when it comes time for experimentation. Um, now, Hopkins is a big part of the sound, but Brian Eno cannot be understated as a contributor. There are a number of other um, producers that contributed to this track, um, but Brian Eno... Um, was a big part of arranging the orchestra. Um, he, he would end up, um, he would end up actually lending his, uh, lending a studio that would end up being called the bakery, um, that they recorded most of the album in, uh, cooking up, <laughs> baking up, uh, yeah, cooking up. Um, he, uh, he pushed the band in interesting directions. He, um, <laughs> There's a song on the album called Yes, where if you listen to it once, you'll understand what I mean. He he said to Chris, hey, I wonder what it would be like if you sang in your natural register um, <laughs> rather than a falsetto. Um, so he uh, he also kind of brought um, he, he kind of brought out an influence of kind of the Baroque and um, just orchestral uh based in kind of church hymns sound that would end up forming Viva La Vida as well as the rest of the album um so Viva La Vida itself as a song um obviously an enormous um enormously influenced by those around uh the band at the time but also very um 
very influenced by people from the past and works from the past. We talked about the images of the album art being based on famous paintings, um, painting, painting and particularly impressionist painting um, was a big inspiration for both the album and how they kind of, how they spoke to um, Brian Eno about how they wanted to hear it mixed and um, kind of the, the idea auditory art, um, what ends up, uh, what ends up kind of resulting there is what they would end up visualizing in the Viva La Vida music video where the band is animated as kind of a moving painting. Um, you can see the brush strokes and similarly when the song is finished, um, you know, the drums, um, which will champion famously is just playing a massive timpani. <laughs> um, they, uh, there's uh you know they're muted it's kind of everything's kind of washing into each other the strings are um the strings are merging very well both with the bass and kind of the foley sounds that john hopkins ended up adding um but it also does contain some of the traditional coldplay instruments um guitar and piano both are parts of the song but they don't they don't drive the song the way the first three albums did um, and I think that's around, that's about the time that we start talking about Viva La Vida from a compositional standpoint, the song itself, because it's deceptively simple. Um, it's four chords, uh, D flat, E flat, A flat, F minor. It doesn't shift from that throughout the entire song, just embellishes. Um, it's, uh, it's a pretty, it's slightly more upbeat than standard tempo. Um, but in general, on paper, not too insane from a pop music standpoint there are a couple of other songs on the album where they play with time signatures and um and whatnot yeah um violet hill actually at the end of the chorus dips into six eight that's a pretty notable moment but um for the most part this one is actually pretty pop in terms of structure what really sets it apart is the instrumentation and the the swirling kind of grouping of sounds that embellish the track. Um, and it makes sense because you're, you're talking about pretty opaque lyrical content in terms of, uh, referencing, referencing St. Peter, old religious references. Anthony will be able to get far further into that than I, but, um, the drama is definitely built within the song and, um, and the instrumentation being used. Now, Again, we mentioned that it <laughs> that it actually was the basis of that year's DJ Earworm um, mix, which I feel like that's something that is of so much more significance of people in our, like, give or take four years age range. But it is notable just because it goes to show. I mean, we were we were young at the time. We were we were all 14 when uh, when this song came out. It clicks, you know. It works as a pop song, but it's also one of the strangest pop songs you've ever heard. I would, I would venture to say that I've never heard a pop song like this since or before. Um, the 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 magic of Viva La Vida is in how complex they've made simplicity sound. Um, I personally, uh, whenever I listen back to the um, to the song you kind of get, I kind of find myself getting carried along by the arrangement. Um, 
every every transition is pretty is pretty embellished you get just big uh orchestral kind of cymbal crashes you get um you get the the bell <laughs> the famous sound effect um fun side note uh coldplay was one of my first ever concerts um and definitely my first favorite concert um on this tour and i remember will champion literally wheeling out um an enormous bass drum and a bell for this song um they uh they just they committed to every single element of the song including the gregorian chants at the end of it which kind of tied things full circle back to the justin timberlake influence on lost later on in the album but um i mean that's a pretty direct uh influence from timbaland uh chris martin has referenced it himself um another weird fact that just bubbled up in my brain from years ago is that he said when uh, asked about the album cover or the album title and Chris Martin kind of has this kind of sense of humor. I really don't know if he was being serious or not. He, they said, why, why did you name it Viva La Vida or death and all his friends? And he said, well, Justin Timberlake had two names for an album. <laughs> he, he had a slash <laughs> kinda, mark. Though. Just kind of left it. At he that. had a slash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't, he didn't elaborate. Nope. <laughs> um, but, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I, and this this also kind of is why I hesitate to really, um, I hesitate to really uh, lend too much credence to the plagiarism um, claims that came against this song, and also why I'm not super surprised because again, it's a pretty standard, um, it's a pretty standard kind of chord progression. Um, it's pretty like I don't want to say simple too often, but it, it's within one. Um, I believe it's within one octave. Um, I could be wrong about that, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty loping melody. Um, again, like I, I don't really see how you can copyright a, a sequence of sounds in intervals and especially with something like this. But the reason that Viva La Vida worked is because it seems familiar, but also exciting. Um, and kind of just, uh, it catches you off guard every time. Um, I think that's a good reason why it's been sampled so often, um, especially in hip hop. I mean, Coldplay, Coldplay have always kind of had a um, kind of an on again, off again uh, relationship with hip hop and the sounds of it. Um, and, uh, you know, strings have always been a significant part of modern hip hop uh, instrumentals to kind of lend drama. In this case, they're, they're directing, um, they're directing kind of an old style sound in a very modern way. Um, speaking of directing, I just remember the, the music videos directed by hype Williams. So again, with the hip hop tie, um, I'm trying, I mean, honestly, the biggest thing, the hardest part talking about Viva La Vida, the song is not going off into a tangent about Viva La Vida, the album, <laughs> because it really does fit in as a cornerstone of, a very, very intricately sequenced album. Um, and again, like it's funny just given how, how strange this song is really at the top of the pop charts in context, this is the breath of fresh air commercial moment. Um, and that's kind of the genius of it. They, <laughs> they, 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 ex they took experimentation in, directly in the path that would still keep them front of mind and accessible 
uh, the best experimental music kind of keeps a foot in the familiar. Um, and I think it's, int- I think it's really fascinating that Coldplay was able to stumble upon this, this, uh, this sound. Um, I think it's very fortuitous for them, uh, given the context. And I think it couldn't have happened without the people that they allowed into their circle and kind of just the complete decimation of the stereotypical rock band ego. Yeah, I think the criticism they received on X and Y, that's a common theme that we've discovered in a lot of the songs that we've covered, that some of an artist's best work happens after they receive some criticism and some you know, painstaking arguments with people who are close to them. They worked with that producer for their first two albums, which were a hit. And it took a falling out for them to find Brian Eno and John Hopkins. And without that falling out, without the bad reviews, without the bad self-reviews that Chris Martin was giving himself, we don't get Viva La Vida. So that kind of paints a fork in the road. Mm -hmm. Artists can wallow in the self-criticism or they, or, you know, other criticism from external sources or they could pave a path for themselves that allows them to experiment. And um, without that criticism, we don't get this smash hit. Yeah. And for that matter, uh, we don't get an album that really set the tone for Coldplay being Coldplay rather than just that, that initial trilogy. Yeah. A joke really. I mean, um, I mean, I remember when I was getting into them being like, wait, these guys are actually good. What are y'all talking about? Like, um, so, I mean, it's, it's, um, John Hopkins himself has talked about, I mean, he kind of had, uh, again, this was also kind of at a crux of his career, um, with a good amount of success coming after that point, And he really only entered into production work based on kind of underperformance of an initial, um, try as a solo artist. And he was saying, you know, I, uh, you know, if I, if, if things had gone great for me, uh, back at the, back on the first album, I don't think I would have stumbled into that room with, with, uh, Brian and Chris and the boys. So. Everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, a lot of to break down production too. Um, even just history of John Hopkins. If you guys haven't heard any john hopkins solo stuff i know chris really likes it a lot um and i actually find it very good as well too so make sure that you check out some of his stuff uh because it is incredible and uh really really good stuff too um last part we'll go into before our segments will be the lyrics of course so i will break down some of these um there is a lot to break down so i'm not going to break down every single lyric um i do have quite a bit um but the first thing i'll say with this is there are a lot of biblical and historical references, probably to no one's surprise, um, you know, gearing up that the album cover is, you know, historical and the name itself and everything in between, too. So I'll start with the name itself. Viva La Vida obviously derives from Spanish phrase meaning live the life, and it takes its name from the painting by the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. I said this earlier, this song is art. Um, in my opinion, and the album is art too. So being able to dive into the second single, but you know, the one that they're going to be known for and having this art surrounding it is very telling and makes a lot of sense too. Um, I feel like with the themes of death and art in this song, it makes a lot of sense with the biblical references as well too. Um, And sometimes when people have life altering events, 
they turned to religion as a constant. Maybe this song is kind of that. So, you know, not death or, you know, anything like that with Coldplay, but they were at a fork in the road, so to speak. So being able to, you know, strip it down and be like, hey, we might have to change everything. They could have leaned on some of this stuff. So I don't know if Chris Martin or the band was religious or is religious, but it could be some of that. I didn't know what your guys' thoughts were. You know, I don't... Um... I don't necessarily think that this is I I've always interpreted and maybe this is also biased by my own um, kind of perspective on religion, especially in the context of art um, that I I've always kind of interpreted it as kind of a reverent um, a reverent view in the context of appreciating art um, just because the canon of fine art has been so influenced by religion over the years and generations. Um, I kind of always interpreted it more from that perspective. Um, but again, that might just be colored by my own biases, but I definitely feel like you can't, you can't separate that religious context, especially from works of the era, um, especially from something like Liberty, Liberty leading the people um, based in the French revolution. Um, I mean, so I, I don't know necessarily how much of it has shaped his own belief structure, but I think he definitely understands the importance of it in terms of what inspired the people he looks up to. They're one and the same a lot of the time. So you get, you know, religion and, you know, people paint or they, you know, have, I think, in a church stained glass. And I looked up, they recorded in churches sometimes, too. So maybe they're just trying to get this all encompassing feel of that with everything, too. Um so this song itself is about a rise and fall. So pretty easy to decipher that from the lyrics at a base level. You know, there is a king and the king is uh, ruling and then all of a sudden he's not ruling and he's on the streets and he is a peasant again and he realizes, holy shit, uh, maybe what I did wasn't the best. And he kind of reflects on that in this song. So start off at the beginning. I used to rule the world. Seas would rise when I gave the word. Um... This is actually kind of a twofold uh, parable with the Bible. Um, I always think to Moses, so parting the Red Sea will be one of those. And then another one that I didn't know about was actually Canute the Great. Um, and I, when I looked up about Canute the Great, um, didn't know a lot about it, but basically he put his throne on the edge of the sea and he said, the sea shall not touch those who rule. Um, and it did. And he said, this should not be in this way. And it was more metaphorical in that way for him to show his ruling and stuff but um this was one that came up when i actually looked up some of the stuff with uh seas would rise when i gave the word um i think most people will think of moses in this way um too but very biblical right from the start with the first two lines um of the song and then another breakdown would be i used to roll the dice Feel the fear in my enemy's eyes. So rolling the dice obviously refers to taking risks. Um, I like a casino game called Craps. If you ever play Craps, you roll dice. And you roll a seven, you lose money. Or you can win money, depending. But most of the time, you will lose money. Um, and what I looked up to is the phrase originally originates with Julius Caesar. And he has a famous phrase, um, Alia Iacta Est. The die has been cast. And he said this when he crossed the Rubicon with his army um, and thus began the civil war with Pompey. And he won, and death 
ensued from yeah. um, as well. And then another one that I thought of um, with religion was when Jesus was crucified on the cross, they casted lots and they rolled dice for his garments after he was crucified yeah. um, as well. So that one is pretty deep, actually, uh, when you read it. So it has some historical context, but also you're like, holy shit, this is a pop song, but we have two really huge biblical lyrics back-to-back going into it that you might not even uh, really know about. And then another one is, Listen as the crowd would sing, Now the old king is dead, long live the king. This one's pretty self-explanatory. European proclamation, The king is dead, long live the king. So denotes the ascension of a new monarch. Um, Now in this song, the king is not actually dead um or maybe he is you know it's all metaphorical in a sense but it's the reign and the rule is dead at this point so he wasn't actually guillotined like some kings and a lot of monarchs uh in the olden days they are taken to the guillotine and they are killed um this not so much but he starts to really realize what he's doing wrong and kind of what's going on and then one minute i held the key the key itself, Chris alluded to this earlier, St. Peter. Those who don't know, St. Peter is the gatekeeper um, into the ascension into heaven in the Bible. So that's Book of Matt sixteen nineteen. Um, yeah, that's pretty, you know, introspective, I think. Uh, lyrics being like, holy crap, I did a lot of bad stuff and maybe I'm going to hell now for it or I'm not getting into heaven and we'll have more on that later. Um I think um, what I'm sorry to interrupt, but I always um, one of the things that always kind of so particularly just due to being being raised Catholic, um, I always kind of thought about that, um, you know, casting lots for Jesus's clothing for the rolling dice line. And so I always tied the St. Peter, um, the St. Peter line to that of, you know, someone, a monarch at the time, really not having to face morals or feel that morals truly apply to them until they lose power and really are faced to come to terms with their own mortality and um, the fact that they are a human. Um, so, yeah, definitely, definitely just a really interesting kind of, again, to tie back to kind of shedding the the stereotype of the rock band or the rock stars ego, you know, it's they're they're coming off of the, the top of their, of their career, so to speak. Um, again, I mean, at the time it looked like that, I, this was, this may arguably have been, but, um, this was a pretty big risk. Um, it's a pretty, it's pretty introspective from a career context as well. When you think about it that way, he, he might be thinking to himself, okay, um, we're, we're really, uh, we're really throwing the crown right now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. And hundred percent. And yeah, it, it is crazy how, when you think of like rock stars, stereotypically, they go through a lot of ups and downs in their life, whether that's drug use or, you know, getting involved in affairs they shouldn't be in or everything. Um, you know, there's too many of those stories with like Tom Petty or Prince or anyone that they were, you know, had this stardom and this high that they had to chase forever too so that could be part of that too with the 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 king you know realizing that he had his high and now he has to deal with the the fallout of everything too um and we're still in the first verse actually to remind you guys too so this is all in the first verse uh, <laughs> that these are so, um, yeah yes there is um yeah. and then the last one for the first verse will be 
and I discover that my castles stand upon pillars of salt and pillars of sand. And another twofold biblical references. So if you're counting at home, this is at least four in the first verse, uh, going biblical um, big time. Um, long story short, uh, pillar of salt referring to the story of Lot's wife. Angels told Lot to take his family and flee and not look back no matter what. Well, guess what? Lot's life looked, uh, Lot's wife looked back and was transformed into a pillar of salt. Kind of weird, but she was. Um, and the pillar of sand she is did. referring to the parable of the wise man who built his house on the rock. Foolish man who built his house on the sand, which was swept away when a storm came. So basically he's saying... Yeah, I really did mess up, and I built them on pillars of salt and pillars of sand. Another fun fact about that, too, is that Chance the Rapper uses the pillar of salt line in Ultra Light Beam. He says, because I bet that my ex looking back like a pillar of salt. Uh, uh, so Yeah, and then he lets out, you know, the, the <laughs> one of the famous uhs. But um, I thought that was cool that, you know... Biblically, when you when you That's might hear the Chance line. Rapper one, you're like, wait, what is what is this? Chance the Rapper, you know, is very much religious in his yes, own sir. right. So thought that was cool that that's also used in a more modern day uh was used eight years later actually too. So everyone knows the chorus. Uh, I won't break down the whole chorus. Uh, there's a couple things I wanted to do with it. Roman cavalry cavalry choirs are singing. Um, Roman soldiers crucified Jesus. Then he died, and the guards exclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God. So, you know, one of those things, Stefan had also mentioned, uh, you know, Baroque and, you know, choirs and everything going on with Romans, too. Um, one of the lines that I misheard when I was reading the lyrics, even to this day, was, be my mirror, my sword, and shield. I thought it was, be my mirror, my soldier. Like, he, he was this suing, like, soldier, but saying it weird. Like soldier, I don't know. Maybe that's dumb. I, I could um, see it now that you say it. I yeah, I, I was like, I be my soul, be my mirror, my soldier. Like I thought he was just saying it weird. I'm like, that's kind of weird, but hey, go off, man. He does. He does have very weird. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, um, so I can't. I can't so, fault you. So, yeah, yeah. Be my yeah. reflection, my sword to fight, and my shield to protect. So, you know, maybe that's what that means in that way. Uh, missionaries in a foreign field for some reason I can't explain. Once you've gone, there was never, never an honest word, and that was when I ruled the world. World, I'll get there was a change, slight change in the second chorus actually too that tie, ties in as well. Um, into the second verse, I'm just gonna break down a, a couple ones in the second verse. Um, revolutionaries wait for my head on a silver plate. Um, I thought that this originally was to do with um the king again actually but it actually happens to go with john the baptist so another biblical reference um king herod's great niece asked for the head of john baptist on a silver platter and there are paintings of this as well too so um pretty weird request yeah very weird request uh she was she was mad um i guess um but uh (laughs) they were popular like i said with guillotines in the middle ages um as well and there are paintings that are actually you know going in with this um with beheadings and everything in between and then um the last one before i break down the, the chorus again um just a puppet on a lonely string oh who would ever want to be king um that's actually the last lyric in a verse um 
And when I think of monarchies, never went well. Nothing ever went well with the monarchy, like when you thought about it. I know that we have the monarchy today in a you know, symbolism stance with the Queen of England, all this. But monarchies are pretty much not all dead, but pretty much dead. You don't see a lot of them, um, especially in, you know, Western culture. There never was or anything. There's a little revolution about it. But it never was good. And I think he realized at the end of this, like, why would you ever want to be king when you have this rise and fall and you are at the top, but what it, what do you get in the end? You're either dead or, you know, what was it for um, in that way? And you are trying to please everyone, and it is a tough job. To, to be a monarch or a king or queen or anyone. And- yeah, two things with the puppet. Um, as a monarch, you're like a, uh, a public figure, but there's people uh, making decisions for you often, and you're just the face of it, so yeah, often you might church, not have full power. Often the church, especially especially back in those days, um, usually based on the church. Yes, so exactly. Not only do you not have full power, but you have kind of this completely unanswerable figure that uh that you're kind of taking all of your whims and morals from and directing yourself from and really just eliminating your own humanity on many levels yep and then the second thing about the puppets is uh if you listened to the music video uh life in technicolor 2 that's actually depicting the pandas all puppets so there was some uh connectivity with this line specifically pretty cool video yeah Absolutely. Um, and then the, the second chorus is almost the exact same. There is one line that is different, though. Um, and that is instead of him saying the line, once you'd gone, there was never, never an honest word. He actually will say instead, for some reason I can't explain, I know St. Peter won't call my name. So it was that big of a realization and a line that he knows that. St. Peter is not calling his name to get into heaven. So um, kind of goes into the end of the song or the outro or whatever you want to call that end of the song too. Um, and then there are some beautiful, um, you know, O's that are going on uh, with, with the band itself uh, that really culminates the song together. So I didn't break down every biblical reference. Reference I had to look up some of them just to see because some were so specific. But man, for a pop song... And one that you sing and think about, there's a lot to do with, with the church and a lot to do with art and everything in, in between, too. So I think it really does culminate what the album was trying to do and what the cover of the album and the painting that revolves around the song, too. So really great way to bring it all together to make, like I said earlier, maybe the perfect pop song. It's also... um it's also like a weird layer of accessible, but also kind of impressive in its own right, uh, because um, so many people will remember those stories because they're that specific. I've I learned about the Pillar of Salt one because my mom at the at the time was like, "Wait a minute, did he just say um, pillars of salt and pillars of sand? Do you know what that's from?" And a teaching like, moment. You know, just getting just getting <laughs> super <approved>. excited <laughs> about that. Mom approved. Yes. Religious Coldplay is for the moms less. and the kids um, that were for singing it who didn't even know what was going on. Clearly. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> okay. Well, we've broken down everything for you all this time. We are going to get to some segments. So the first segment we're going to do, guys, and this is a hard one, I know. Probably be a hard one for Chris, too, will be... 
the top five Coldplay songs for you all. So we've done this. Again, don't have a name for this yet. If you guys have one, please email us one that we could use uh, for this segment. But I'll throw it to Chris first. Chris, can you give me your top five Coldplay songs, starting from five and going up to one? So... I really don't think I can do a ranking. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like I, I love Coldplay's discography on many, many levels. Um, but I can think of five definitely off the top of my head that are favorites. And so I'll start with a couple of my all time favorites. The first being uh, life in Technicolor also on this album, um, both the original and life in Technicolor two with lyrics are all time favorites of mine. I love that melody. Um, Life in Technicolor, the original, features a bit of John Hopkins' song that is another favorite of mine, Life Light Through the Veins. Um, so that would be one. Uh, Up With the Birds off of Milo Zylado is the outro track. Um, and I that's the one that inspired the bird tattoo that I've got Beautiful on my rib. Song. Um, great song. Um, I, uh, I would also uh, go for Don't Panic off of parachutes um lovely little uh little ode to hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy um i lost also on viva la vida another favorite of mine um incredible production the remix with jay-z is also wonderful and lost question mark the acoustic version um has a special place for me as well um and I'm try- I'm really trying to think of a fifth one. And I feel like this is going to go the same way as with Britney Spears, where I'm where later on I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, but uh, God, okay, Chris, three, two, one. Um, Death and all his friends. The outro on this album is an incredible song. Um, I would. Uh, I would definitely, yeah, <laughs> that's one that I always end up coming back to. Um, I think one of the biggest reasons that this album has such good replay value to me is because it ends up being a loop with um, with a bit of uh, light through the veins uh, ending death and all his friends as well. Um, and I just love the lyrics of that and how it builds. Uh, yeah, great great discography um there are definitely great songs in the second half of it as well um i know i didn't really go past milo xylado but again i really recommend listening to everyday life (laughs) i wanted to think of one off of that but it's just so recent that i can't put it in the canon yet all right well thank you for that chris all right stefan what are your top five five to one all right so number five is a bit of a guilty pleasure for me do i think it's like one of the top five greatest Coldplay songs? No. It's uh, Princess of China with Rihanna. and But I love the song because it's catchy. You have a Rihanna feature. There's like a quick foray into dubstep, which was pretty popular in the ta- and during the time. Anyway, you don't need me to replicate exactly. that. Um, so that's a personal favorite of mine, even though if it's not critically acclaimed kind of wild for your first uh feature in your discography to be rihanna too yes like uh i know lost plus had jay-z but that was kind of like a, a remix yeah but no, this was true. like yeah that's the original true. version so yeah. huge name um number four we have shiver off of parachutes uh that one's kind of sentimental to me we won't get into it we don't 
this is a podcast. We don't need to get into that, but sentimental reasons. Listen to the lyrics. You'll see. Number three, Strawberry Swing off this album, Viva La Vida or Death and All His Friends. Love the song. God. You like it too, Chris? Uh, that definitely should have been mine. That should have been my fifth. You know who else likes it? Frank Ocean. Wonderful cover. Beautiful cover. I recommend checking that out. It does. Uh, number two, The Scientist. Uh, this is my favorite Viva La Vida, pre-Viva La Vida uh, Coldplay song. I think it's beautifully haunting, very relatable story of falling out of grace with a lover. That's what Coldplay is good for. And number one, I got to give it to Viva La Vida. There's no other song in general, let alone Coldplay song, that comes close to matching this song's uniqueness. It's iconic. All right, well, y'all are switching the rules around me again because we couldn't get, put oh, Toxic well, I can, in for I number can one. Well, I can replicate uh, toxic. it if you want no, me to. That's I okay. thought I was going to bend back to your rules. No, that's okay. No, that's all right. I'll I'll include Viva La Vida. We need a rule book too. going forward. We do need a rule book. <laughs> we do. Um, so I'll give my five through one uh, real quick. Uh, five for me is The Scientist. Um, I do not know how to play the piano, but I used to be able to play that on the piano, actually. So that is, I think pre-telling how good the song is and how catchy it is and um sad song as well too um number four for me this is actually a song that i think might be one of coldplay's more underrated songs um charlie brown i love that song great song uh, by um coldplay um have actually some funny stories uh to charlie brown too that my dad and i share um their time in vegas um Three for me is Paradise, maybe solely because of the video. Every time I watch that goddamn video, I, I a, cry. That's a, that a great song. I, I am like, I don't know what it is. It's the, the elephants and the, the lost, and it's just like, holy shit, here come the waterworks. So um, that'll be one for me. Uh, excuse me, number three. Uh, number two is Yellow. Um, like, Pure nostalgia, maybe too, but I think it's a great song. Um, my number one would have been Viva La Vida um, if we were including it, which I didn't know we were. But um, Clocks might be my favorite Coldplay song. Um, it's the one that maybe put them on the map too, and I think it's maybe one of their Viva La Vida's first. But I think Clocks is one of theirs that would be you know synonymous with them too that you think about. I would definitely well. agree with that. Yeah. Clocks is what they're known for. Uh, aside from Viva yeah. La Vida. Yep, indeed. All right, so let's get into our segment, which is the signature segment, which would be the top 10 back then. The top 10 back then. The top 10 back then, brought to you by Ryan, will be right now. Let's go. Let's get into it. What was the date for this one again? June 28th, 2008. Okay, so, all right, we'll have to see what was in around this time because we've had a couple that have gone 2008 and around this time. So let's start. Well, we know number one, obviously, uh, was Viva La Vida. Um, what was number two? Number two, number two. Um, I'll just tell you. It's I Kissed a Girl by Katy Perry. That makes sense. And this is uh, <laughs> pretty remarkable. Let's think of the landscape of 2008. Gay marriage is not legalized yet. It's still a taboo topic, and this song is number two. Everyone was mm. singing it, no matter what. People loved it. It was risque. 
It was at the time. Yeah, kind of problematic yes, in uh, in hindsight, but for what, uh, yeah, you know, shock. It is what it shock is. value song really, and like, it, I mean, it worked. Did it go? It, it might have went number one at some point too. It did for like yeah. eight weeks. I remember. It did, and uh, number three, we have a song that was also number one. It is "Lollipop" by Lil Wayne. Yes. Great song. Great mm-hmm. song. Featuring Static Major, who sadly... Um, Rest in peace. I didn't know this. Yeah, I didn't know he died before the yeah, song was Yeah, he out. did. I yeah. think a lot of people don't realize yeah, that of... that's Static Major singing the chorus either, because you're like, yeah. this kind of sounds like Lil Wayne um, still. <laughs> you're like, I could see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he passed away. Rest in peace. Yeah, that's, that's one of not many posthumous number ones in the history of the billboard top 100 uh hot 100 charts as well which you know a very sad uh accolade to earn but i mean yeah rest in peace static i wish we could have had more yeah chris i think i read today that xx tenacion was the that is uh, correct the, the most the... recent one yeah <laughs> for better or worse all right what was number four uh personal favorite of mine bleeding love by leona lewis Number four. Classic. Classics also was number one. Yeah, we got a string of number ones to round out the top four. Yeah. Uh, number five, we have yet another number one song, Take a Bow, really? Rihanna. Jeez. Oh. <laughs> Beautiful Man. song. Now that's a, that's a whole album, Good Girl Gone Bad, that we're going to have to come to. Oh, yeah. Soon. 100%. Uh, number six, Pocket Full of Sunshine, Natasha Benningfield, breaking our number one streak. It This was its peak, number six. Oh, I forgot about that. I completely forgot about well, that. <laughs> that. That one movie uh, with Emma Stone, uh, she sings it, right? I don't recall the movie, but I can imagine Emma Stone singing it, considering okay. she sang in La La Land. It makes sense. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, there was something with the, with the no, card. I think you're right. It's like with Anthony. the card, and she sings it, yeah. She's like, take me Anthony, away. I'm pretty sure I can... Yeah, where God, was it? Is, easy A? Maybe it was. It's, I think it's Easy A. Yeah, it wasn't Zombie Land. That's for sure. But all right, sorry, um, Emma Stone for not remembering. Okay, uh, what yeah, was number bad. seven? Seven. We have No Air. Jordan Sparks, a duet with Chris Brown. It does not say featured. It says duet. Yeah, I mean, the song was a pretty like solid duet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This was before Chris Brown was problematic. Speaking of Chris Brown, this was you know what number eight is? Yeah, this was a couple months. Uh, forever. Forever. It's forever. Yeah. This was around the time. You know what's wild? Um, so I just recently saw that The Office is going to be redoing the wedding scene. Um, yeah, they redid it. The yeah, they Jim did it on uh, dance. John Krasinski's Some Good News. Uh, I know they did it already. They kept with the song. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, like, there was a time when Chris Brown was like an obvious choice for uh for a hit sitcom to use in like a pivotal scene. <laughs> and then a few months after this, he showed who he was. That is the sad truth. Yeah. Um number 9 we have Love in This Club, Usher featuring Young oh. Jeezy. I love that song. Great song. That song too. is, this is, a, good is top a beautiful 10. club anthem. Yeah. I mean, really yeah, this is another 10. number one. So counting the number ones in this top ten, we have Viva La Vida, Lollipop, Bleeding Love, Take a Bow, and Love in This Club. 
That's five. Wow. Wow. And then what was number 10? A song that I forgot about until I read it. Shake It, Metro Station. (laughs) Miley Cyrus's brother, I believe. You touch it like this. Wait, Miley Cyrus's brother is in Metro Station? Yeah, Yeah. it's like his Oh, that's his project. And then you have Noah Cyrus and Billy Ray. Very musical family. Wow, okay. Um, Very musical. Shake It is... Well, nah. I was going to say Shake It was going to be like maybe rock, but nah, I, I take it back. Yeah, it's a it's a thing. It's something. But if that's rounding out the top ten, I think we have a good top ten. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good top ten. All right. <laughs> Jesus. Well, great. Um, make sure that you follow our top ten back then playlist. We update it every week uh, yeah. as well. Um, this is a great one to play. Um, weather's getting warm. Uh, bump it out your windows of your car or whatever. Um, Stefan, run through it one more time for us so that we can get that top ten. All right, so number one, we have the song that this podcast you're listening to is about Viva La Vida by Coldplay. Number two, Katy Perry's first hit, I Kissed a Girl. Number three, Lollipop, Lil Wayne featuring Static Major, rest in peace. Number four, Bleeding Love, Leona Lewis. Number five, we have Take a Bow by Rihanna. Number six, we have Pocket Full of Sunshine by Natasha Bedingfield also covered by Emma Stone in a mystery movie. We will get to the bottom of that. I think it's Easy A, but we're going with Easy A. Number seven, we have Nowhere, a Jordan Sparks duet with Chris Brown. Number eight, we have Forever by Chris Brown. Number nine, Love in This Club, Usher featuring Young Jeezy. And number 10, we have Shake It by Metro Station. And there you have it. All right. Well, thank you for that. Also, crazy that he was still young Jeezy then. Now he's just Jeezy. Yeah, he was. He's not young anymore. One day he'll be, but he was young at yeah, that Maybe point. one day he'll be old Jeezy. I don't know. We'll see. Well, once again, that will wrap it up for another episode of Over My Head, a look back at Pop's past. Brought to you by Los Lovely Boys. Thank you for listening through on this one. It was a long one, but well worth the dive into this song. If you want to hear our episodes as they drop, please subscribe, download, and listen wherever you listen to podcasts most. Make sure that you give us a five-star review as well. Only helps us, and we'll make sure that we can get you the quality that you deserve. If you want to add your input on the song, want to suggest songs to look into, or just want to give general feedback, you can email us at LLC at gmail.com also go follow us on social media twitter instagram see behind the scene type of stuff polls everything that we're doing with every episode and for my co-host chris and stefan hope we weren't too far in over our heads on this one we'll see you next time